0: Hello, and welcome back to the Wild Brew Podcast. I am your host, Phoebe Crottinger. Last week, we sat down with Mitch Cutter of the Idaho Conservation League and talked about the dams along the Snake River. To no one's surprise, the dams are also a central talking point in today's episode. So, before we begin, a quick review. There are four dams on the lower Snake River. The Ice Harbor Dam, the Lower Monumental Dam, Little Goose Dam, and the Lower Granite Dam. Salmon migrating to central Idaho can pass over these dams on their way back to spawn, but baby salmon have a very difficult time crossing over them to get back to the ocean. The Hell's Canyon Dam is also located on the Snake River, but has no fish passage, and therefore blocks all of the salmon from migrating to southern Idaho. To mitigate the loss of fish from all of these dams, I had the great privilege of talking with John Cassinelli,
1: Uh My name is John Castanelli and I'm the Anadromous Fisheries Manager for the Idaho Department of Fishing Game.
0: About how Idaho manages salmon populations in the wake of, well, no wake. And how Idaho has gone great lengths to save our sockeye salmon from extinction. Let's dive in. John, thank you so much for joining me today on this Wild Bird podcast. I am very, very excited to talk to you about salmon hatcheries, and specifically because I did go to the sockeye salmon hatchery in Eagle, which was an eye opener, and I felt like I was on a field trip. It was super interesting, and I have lived in Idaho my entire life, except for a small stint when my husband was in the Navy. And I did not realize how important salmon were to Idaho, which feels like a horrible admission to make. So now that I live in Boise and salmon may have a bigger presence there, even though there's really no salmon in Southern Idaho, I feel like it's my mission to dig deeper. So today I want to talk to you about the hatcheries we have here in Idaho, because there's apparently a long history that I didn't know about. So before we begin, what is a hatchery, and how is it different from a fishery?
1: Yeah, so I guess in its simplest form, a hatchery is a facility that raises fish. And so usually from eggs all the way to, it can be either to adulthood if we're talking resident fish, or to smolt if we're talking anadromous fish, but it's essentially just a facility that raises fish. And so the difference between a hatchery and a fishery is that while a hatchery raises fish, a fishery is just a section of water, typically a river, but it can be a lake or a stream where people actively or anglers attempt to catch fish. So those are the the main differences between the two.
0: So in regards to Idaho specifically, and this can encompass all the the types of fish we have in Idaho, how long have hatcheries been in Idaho? What's the history of hatcheries here?
1: Yeah, so the first facility that I'm aware of was um, the state Haysper fish hatchery that was built in nineteen oh seven and that was built as a resident fish hatchery. It's in central Idaho over by Silver Creek and near the Ketchum Haley area. So that's that's the first hatchery that was built in Idaho and then after that, through the turn of the century, there was multiple hatcheries built. As far as salmon and steelhead hatcheries, those really started coming online in the 1960s and through the 70s and 80s and corresponded with the construction of the Hells Canyon and Snake River Dams.
0: 1907, that's really, that's a long time. Why did Idaho need hatcheries at the turn of the century? In my mind, you know, Idaho's pristine during that area. Is that not correct? or What happened?
1: Yeah, so you think back of what the landscape looked like then and, you know, early settlement and specifically mining, and there was a lot of reliance on fish in streams to feed miners and growing communities and so there was even you know commercial harvest of a lot of our resident trout species and so supply really couldn't keep up with demand and so the hatcheries were a way to put more fish out there on the landscape for these developing communities and mining communities to, to have a source of food in resident fish.
0: Back to salmon hatcheries. the 1960s and 70s, we see the first salmon hatcheries in Idaho. How many salmon hatcheries do we have now?
1: So I guess across the state, there's in the neighborhood of 15 or so. And so, I mean, we being the state of Idaho have a subset of hatcheries. The tribes manage a couple hatcheries. And so there's roughly about 15. You're looking at Two for sockeye, roughly nine that raise Chinook salmon. And then there's some overlap between Chinook and steelhead facilities. And then we have another four or five that'll raise steelhead.
0: So would you mind telling us a little bit about how salmon hatcheries work in Idaho? Like where do the eggs come from? At what life cycle the fish are released from the hatchery? How many are released and where are they released?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess I'll start with, you know, you you toured this one of our sockeye facilities and the sockeye facilities are, are quite unique in kind of how they operate compared to some of our other salmon and steelhead hatcheries. So the sockeye program has a, a captive brood stock program as a component of that. And you probably saw maybe some of the adult fish that were on station there in Eagle. And so that's more of a, a conservation type program. And so we have some captive brood here in Idaho and some, some additional captive fish in Washington. And and so those captive brood provide some eggs and then we also have returning anadromous fish from the ocean that are trapped at our sawtooth fish trap and at the redfish lake fish trap that are also used to um, create eggs. And so those fish are spawned in the hatchery, and basically that's how we collect eggs for the next generation that'll be released and, and go to the ocean. Outside of the sockeye program, when you think of you know our chinook and our steelhead facilities, those facilities all run as broodstock collection facilities, and so we collect returning adults from the ocean for Chinook and for Steelhead at our hatchery traps, and those fish are then spawned to create future generations, and those fish are reared in the hatchery and released to go to the ocean. And so um, I think you'd asked at what point in the life cycle are fish released from a hatchery. For the most part, for our anadromous facilities, we're releasing fish um, as smolts. So those are juvenile fish that are preparing to make the transition from freshwater to saltwater. So we release those fish about their time they're starting to smolt because that's the cue that they need to migrate downriver to the ocean. And so for steelhead, that's when they've been in the hatchery for roughly a year. For our sockeye and our Chinook species, those fish will stay in the hatchery for closer to two years, and then we'll release some smolts. And they're released across the landscape. Most of them are released for all the species at a hatchery trap. That way, when they come back as adults, you can trap them at those same traps. But we do, you know, specifically to steelhead and a little bit for chinook, we have some off-site releases where we release fish off-site at places that'll create fisheries when they come back. And so there's a little bit of that that goes on across the salmon and clearwater basins.
0: Now, the one question I've been wanting to ask an expert, because it's been mentioned multiple times in many of the books that I've read and other interviews I've had, but it's never really had a clarification. What is the difference between what we would consider a wild salmon and a hatchery salmon? Because it's my understanding, especially with sockeye, most of these sockeye salmon that we see coming back, are technically not wild by the way we think of them, like where they've never had any human interference. So how would you define the wild versus hatchery? Is there like a certain amount of generations that a hatchery salmon has to like spawn through to be considered wild?
1: So for, and I mean, for anadromous fish, it's really just hatchery or wild is determined by where they were reared and so, or born. So hatchery fish are essentially born and reared in a hatchery environment, and wild fish are born in the wild. And so a single generation can separate. So if you release a hatchery fish, it swims to the ocean, comes back, and spawns, in the case of sockeye in a lake, or the case of steelhead or chinook in a river, those offspring are then considered wild because they're born in the wild.
0: So when you are getting, or when you are recording return counts, and it's a big deal every year in Idaho, it's always on the news. Like this year we had X amount of like, we'll say Sockeye come back. Everyone's very excited because the numbers are slowly growing after many years of really not great numbers. How on earth are you getting accurate return counts? Because one, it's a fish. Two, it's underwater. I mean, is there some poor guy that's out at a riverhead just being like, one, two, is that how it's going? Or how are you getting these accurate counts for wild and hatchery salmon?
1: yeah so for idaho all of our fish obviously have to come over all the dams in the columbia and the snake river and so the one caveat of the dams that that helps us count fish is that all those fish have to swim over a ladder and so they're concentrated as they come over those ladders and we can get a good count of those fish and so you think of lower granite dam which is the last dam that idaho bound adults have to return over all of those fish go through a single fish ladder at Lower Granite Dam, and they swim by a window where they're counted. And so we get accurate counts of the total number of fish that are coming back above Lower Granite, and then specific to if they're wild or hatchery, or even to which hatchery they're going to return to. All of our fish that go out, whether they're hatchery or wild, they get subset of them get PIT tags, which PIT tag is an acronym for passive integrated transponder tag. And so these are little, they're about the size of a grain of rice. And as they come back over detectors, they send out a signal and they have a unique number. And so we have um, traps in the rivers that'll collect wild juveniles as they're headed out and we can PIT tag a subset of those wild out migrants. And then within our hatchery, we tag a subset of those fish as well. And so not only do, when those fish come over Lower Granite Dam, do we know how many are coming back based on expanding these pit tag detections, we can estimate how many are coming back to a specific hatchery or to a specific basin. And then we also have genetic tools that we'll use sort of after the fact to, so there's a trap at Lower Granite Dam and a, a subset of those fish that swim through the ladder or are diverted into a trap where we can take, you know, a thin clip for genetic samples, take lengths weights, all that stuff. And so after the fact, based on that trap subsample, we can use genetics to further refine specific stocks and origin of fish based on their genetic makeup as well. So in season, in real time, you're getting the counts and the tag detections and that helps you manage your fisheries and kind of know what's going back where. Post season, we can then further refine those estimates based on
0: the genetics. And now that you're mentioning genetic tools and genetic diversity and stuff, let's just go ahead and talk about that. Um, That, I think, was the most uh, fascinating thing that I saw, specifically at the Sockeye Salmon Hatchery. So can you explain a little bit about how we make sure, especially Sockeye, are not becoming genetically inbred?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, I'll just note that Idaho is fortunate in that we have really a world-class genetics lab in Eagle, right adjacent to the Eagle Hatchery that you toured for Sockeye. And so we do some pretty amazing genetics work in-house um, across the board related to our anadromous fish species. And specific to sockeye, you mentioned the you know there was some really slim return years there in the 90s where we were just getting a handful of fish coming back. And from a genetic perspective, that's worrisome because you don't want inbreeding, you don't want bottlenecking. And so we've been able to use genetics to crossbreed our sockeye to basically ensure that we're getting the best genetic diversity that we can with the limited fish that we would had back during that period and we've done subsequent studies now that we've kind of gotten out of that bottleneck and have a lot more fish to spawn and we've shown that we made it through that bottleneck and really didn't have a high level of inbreeding or um, a loss of genetic diversity kind of based on using those genetic spawning matrices to kind of make sure we're maximizing the genetics And I guess I'll just also note, you know, for our our Chinook programs, we use an integrated broodstock management approach for a lot of those fish. And so we're using, you know, a wild component of the runs to contribute to our broodstock and then also using some of the hatchery fish to put on the spawning grounds above weirs to make sure that over time we don't see any sort of genetic variation between our hatchery runs and our wild runs in those specific basins where we have bones to make sure that the genetics
0: Okay, that's awesome and I was really curious about that because again that seems to be a really big uh criticism against hatcheries in Idaho is oh we've got the hatchery salmon that are interbreeding with the wild salmon and on and on and on and I was wondering obviously fish are wild an- are animals you know there's going to be interbreeding no matter what you do but is it a, a huge concern or let's talk a little bit about Idaho's management of making sure that I guess that doesn't happen does it happen yeah.
1: Yeah, and so it's not like because of how we're managing these fish and because the hatchery fish are not you know, genetically different from the wild fish, it's not really a big issue for us in these basins where we have hatcheries. And I'll just note that all of our hatcheries have hatchery genetic management plans that were approved through NOAA Fisheries. And so um, we're working under the confines of these plans that are uh, federally reviewed to make sure that we don't have issues with our genetic composition of our stocks. And then, you know, we monitor stray rates throughout the state. When I say strays, those are fish that return to, you know, a place where they weren't released. And so that's considered a stray. So the fish you release in the upper Salmon River swims up the middle fork of the Salmon River, that's considered a stray. But with these pit tags that I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of different pit tag arrays across the landscape that can detect fish. You know, even on places like the middle fork of the Salmon, which is a huge wilderness area, we can... have capabilities to detect fish there. We do spawning ground surveys across the landscape. where We're recovering um, carcasses of spawned fish, and we can use genetics or tags to see what the origin of those fish were. And by and large, um, hatchery fish do not stray a lot in Idaho. You'll find strays occasionally in various places, but it's, it's not a huge problem, and we don't see a lot of, of mixing of and wild fish outside of the basins where we're intentionally releasing hatchery fish.
0: It's pretty good news, and I guess really reliable for a salmon to return to their spawning grounds. I'm sure that makes your guys' yep. job way easier. You've got all these fish coming back to hatcheries and they're going to die. What do you do with all of these salmon carcasses that come back to the hatcheries?
1: Yeah, so it depends on the facility and, um, you know, ESA considerations. there's any sort of disease considerations but a lot of times we'll take the carcass and put them back on the landscape because you think of the the nutrient load in a a carcass coming back from the ocean and how much how many nutrients those supply and so that historically that was huge in idaho and you know we're in the Batholiths where we've got this really granitic soil and there's not a lot of nutrients in the soil itself and so these anadromous returns provided huge amounts of marine derived nutrients and so we try to still put some fish on the landscape or some carcasses on the landscape where we can do so you know without any sort of disease or concerns in that regard. A lot of them sometimes they'll go to a landfill if we don't need the actual carcasses for spawning and we have more fish than we need for broodstock a lot of times the tribes will take some of the excess fish and use them for ceremonial and subsistence purposes. Sometimes they'll go to food banks if if that's an option. And so lots of various options, will outplant some adults sometimes, so we'll have excess adults over what we need for broodstock, and we'll just release those fish live to spawn naturally um, on the landscape. So lots of different avenues to, to deal with the fish, and ideally, in the case of steelhead and chinook, where we're really bringing a lot of those fish back for harvest, we want all the fish in excess of broodstock needs to be harvested by anglers, and that's mm-hmm. kind of our goal, and sometimes that happens, and sometimes... Doesn't but lots of options for for fish once they return to a hatchery
0: so forgive my ignorance on this because i'm not a fisherwoman my husband's a fisherman our worlds are kind of separated i don't ask too many questions i'm like oh have fun honey so there are certain salmon species in idaho because in my brain like salmon just means endangered and i know that that's not necessarily true so in idaho you can fish for salmon correct it just varies species is it catch and release Or are there some salmon that you actually can eat? I know sockeye, like my my brain has been wrapped around sockeye because that's where most of my research has been, which is basically like no touch.
1: Yep. Yeah, so sockeye, um, because they're endangered, they're, I mean, the whole point of the whole hatchery program and that program in general is to recover those fish and and they're protected and there's no harvest of those fish. For the majority um, of our steelhead and Chinook programs, those are all mitigation programs, and so they were put into place to mitigate for the har- loss of harvest when the dams went in. And so almost all of those fish are released with the purpose of them providing a fishery when they come back. Um, and so there are, most years, if numbers are sufficient, we have active spring, summer, fall Chinook fisheries and steelhead fisheries. And So that's a huge a huge driver behind the hatcheries and really their their main purpose so yeah that's what they provide to the both the tribal and the sport anglers in idaho is the opportunity to harvest those fish when they come back
0: how far are we from a future when hatcheries aren't needed or will they always be needed given the state of everything
1: yeah and so you know for for salmon and steelhead um as i mentioned because those are mitigation programs that are Snake River and the Hell's Canyon Dam complexes. I mean, as long as those dams exist on the landscape, those hatcheries will be in place to mitigate for the losses. So they will they will exist in perpetuity um, in that regard. It's a little different for sockeye because uh, those are kind of, that's more of a con- conservation program and the, that hatchery is in place to help recover the species. So it's a difficult question to answer. Obviously, with all of the issues that we have to deal with on the landscape and trying to return sockeye, you know, nine hundred miles to central Idaho. It's an uphill battle to think that we're gonna to get to recovery. And so that hatchery's probably gonna be in place for a long time and helping those fish along the way. And so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be seeing hatcheries on the landscape probably for a long time.
0: What would the state of salmon be in Idaho if there were no hatcheries? And I know you kind of answered that, but I think it's just important to kind of reinforce the importance yeah. of hatcheries.
1: So that's, that's a really interesting question we do. We have a, um, a fisheries research office out in Nampa and they they exist solely to do various fish research. Idaho's kind of unique in that regard and then we have an office that's just fully dedicated. We have all of our management offices spread across the state, but we have this specific office where, where all they do is, is fish research. And in the wintertime when it's the down season and we're weekly brown bag session on Wednesdays where, you know, somebody leads the discussion and distributes a paper for folks to read, and we kind of have this hour-long lunchtime discussion on the topic. And just last week, we all read and reviewed a paper out of Oregon State University that asked that specific question. Um, Robert Lackey was the author, and he, he reached out to 60 salmon scientists and asked them to anonymously answer that question on how they felt or what they felt would happen to runs hatcheries went away and, and by and large most of the folks that they talk to and I tend to agree with this felt like if hatcheries were removed that the populations as a whole would decline and that includes you know that's the entire population because you're talking hatchery and wild fish um, you may see a little bit of a bump in wild populations in certain places but by and large the runs would be smaller because so much of the runs are made up of that hatchery component I think for us in Idaho, we've got so many places. I mentioned the Middle Fork salmon earlier. We've got a lot of different really um, large and um, intact basins in the state where there's no hatchery influence at all. And so we've seen over time kind of what those populations have done in the absence of hatcheries. And they fluctuate like everything else we have years where the ocean conditions line up and they're good and you get good returns to those basins, and you have years where ocean conditions drop and you'll see low returns to those basins. So in the absence of hatcheries, I'm pretty confident we'd see that across the landscape. You'd have populations that would carry on, but they'd be highly variable based on kind of what the ocean looked like, and overall we'd see lower numbers of
0: returns. And a lot of unhappy fishermen, I'm sure.
1: Yes.
0: Given everything, what would you consider to be the biggest success with Idaho hatcheries?
1: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, you've mentioned sockeye a fair amount, and I think in in that example, I mean, the hatchery program has essentially saved them, right? They were on the brink of extinction, and we don't know what would have happened had we not intervened with the hatchery program, but it's reasonable to suspect they could have gone away forever. And so we've essentially saved that species and been able to kind of bring them back to much higher numbers. So that's a huge success for the sockeye program. And then on the, the steelhead and the chinook side... Um, You know, those hatcheries have provided thousands and thousands of fish for anglers to catch and kind of remain connected to the resource, and we're talking both Idaho sport anglers, we're talking tribal fishers, and so being able to go fish for those fish, catch them, and remain connected to that resource is huge and and
0: Absolutely. Do you know the economic influence that the salmon has on, like, Central Idaho? Like,
1: Yeah, I don't know that offhand. I know there's been studies that show the huge economic benefit, right, because, I mean, those are pretty intense fisheries, especially when you're talking about the Chinook fisheries and Riggins and you're pulling in, you know, thousands of anglers over a, you know, a month-long period. So it's, it's a really large economic impact, and I've seen some reports related to that, but
0: I asked Professor Google what the economic impact of salmon was on the Idaho economy, and I got a few varying answers, mostly because studies aren't done very often. But in short, for a small state like ours, the economic impact is ginormous. For those of us who like hard numbers, according to the American Sport Fishing Association, in 2018, 640,000 anglers spent $757 million in fishing related expenses, which generated a 1.1 billion dollar economic boon for Idaho and supported over 8,403 jobs. And if you look at the gross state product of Idaho in 2018, it was around 70 billion. So yeah, fishing is kind of a big deal here. I'm curious, what is the Idaho fishing game considered to be the biggest threat or threats to Idaho salmon?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because obviously there's lots of lots of things that impact salmon and I think for me when I think about that question, the biggest one that comes to mind is, the impacts of a changing climate. You think about, you know, the hydro system and the characteristics of, you know, runoff and river temperatures and how those fluctuate with a changing climate with maybe earlier runoff or later runoff and warmer water temperatures in the the later spring and early summer. See a less stable and more sporadic ocean in the face of climate change, the ocean used to be a lot more predictable and kind of the El Nino and La Nina fluctuations that we and and how those would impact our returns, and we're seeing, you know, that those swings are more sporadic and frequent now, and they're harder to predict, so that, you know, the ocean is such a big driver for the success of our fish, and having that level of fluctuation makes managing them so much more difficult. And I think,
0: so moving forward as,
1: you know, we continue to deal with kind of a changing climate, I think those issues are going to be the the biggest hurdles for us to try to deal with in salmon management.
0: So, as we wrap this episode up, first of all, thank you again for sharing all of this knowledge. It's this been fantastic. Is there anything else you would like to add to help educate the Idaho population about the amazing programs we have here and how lucky we are to have these runs?
1: No, I think I would just mention that, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how complex managing salmon in Idaho is. We're talking about, you know, a species that spends the majority of their life several hundred miles outside of the state. In the ocean, and and, and has to swim through two different states to get back here. And so, outside of you know managing migratory birds on the wildlife side, you know, anadromous fish are one of the higher profile and trickier species to manage. And we're kind of at the end of the conveyor belt. So, so much of what happens downriver impacts kind of what goes on in Idaho. And we're heavily involved with the states of Oregon and Washington and, and the tribes and various groups on, on managing downriver harvest and and all of the things that happen to these fish in the Columbia Basin. And I think I think hatcheries at times can get a bad rap and there's there's been some some, you know, media out there and various things that talk about kind of the detriment of hatcheries on an fish. And I think in places some of that is definitely at the forefront. But I think how those Facilities are managed here in Idaho with, with all that we do on the genetic side and all of the, you know, wild and natural areas that we manage for that, that they're successful programs and that they're very important to kind of keeping us connected to this, to this resource. And, um, I think they're, they're super important going forward and they've, they've played a big role in, in the landscape across Idaho.
0: So as we end everything here, what are your top three tips for sustainability and how can we be a better steward of the planet?
1: Yeah, I think for me, of the things that come to mind, Idaho Fishing Game and our agency, obviously, we, we we're we big promoters of fishing and hunting and just being outside. And so one of the things that like, I always try to tell people, whether you're fishing, you're hunting, you're camping, you're hiking, you're bird watching, whatever it is that gets you outside. And that's why people love Idaho is to leave places better than you found them, whether that's trash cleaning up a trail a little bit closing a gate that should be closed um, whatever it is just try to leave places better than you found them And if we all did that I think that would be a big win I try to encourage people to be advocates for the environment and wildlife but not be too narrowly focused I think we see so many times where people are advocates and they're passionate but sometimes they're too focused in their scope and understanding of the issues that advocate for the environment and wildlife with an open mind and try to understand the complexity of all the issues so that you can channel that in the right direction. And then I guess finally a big one for me is just passing on the passion for the outdoors to the next generation. I have two sons and they're you know it's easy to see them you know now in the digital age it's easy to see folks wanting to get caught up and just you know being on screens or being inside and so I see that with them I see that with their friends and I see that with a lot of the next generation and so just getting kids outside and passing on that passion for the resource and the environment and whatever that is and so you know a lot of these problems that you and I talked about today you know we're gonna be long gone and they're still gonna be at the forefront and so the next generation is gonna inherit these you know setting them up for success and continuing to move the needle on these issues will be key for us.
0: John I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to talk with me about Idaho's fish management. For those listening, I hope you have gained a new appreciation of how difficult it is to manage our precious salmon populations in light of how many obstacles these fish face. But as John said, the next generation will inherit these issues, and it is critical we stay educated and informed about how our resources are managed and how we can continue to implement best practices. If you are curious to learn more, you can visit the Idaho Fishing Game website www.idfg.idaho.gov or if you are local you can visit the Idaho Sockeye Salmon Hatchery here in Eagle, Idaho. If you can't make it out there, I wrote an article about my experience there, and you can find it in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support Wild Brood's conservation mission, please visit www.wildbrood.art, where you can find a plethora of cranky coffee animals to purchase. This year, 100% of all profits from the Wild Brood Art Division are going straight to the Roatan Marine Park in support of their coral restoration efforts. Thank you again for listening, and stay tuned for next week's salmon installment.